Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. Our special guest this week needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyways. Hailing from the great state of New Jersey, he's been drumming professionally since the age of seven. A great fan of the game of hockey and the New Jersey Devils. A former hockey dad. Longtime member of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, the author of the fabulous book, The Big Beat, 16 years with Conan O'Brien on Late Night and The Tonight Show, a member of the Planning and Zoning Board of Delray Beach, Florida, <laughs> a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the leader of his own jukebox band, currently playing shows all across the United States. Let's give a big welcome to the mighty Max Weinberg. Well, thank you so much, Alan. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, it's wonderful to hear my resume. I, I guess I'm sort of the different drummer you always heard about. <laughs> I've sort of got my hand in a lot of different pies, but... Uh, Congratulations on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to have you. So, Max, do you remember the first time Bruce referred to you as the mighty Max Weinberg? Well, I remember it was during the first tour that I did, which was so long ago, it didn't have a name. <laughs> <laughs> it was the fall 74 tour when I joined the band. I auditioned in August of of uh, 1974, got with uh, Bruce and the E Street Band and literally went on the road 10 days later. And, you know, it was alliterative, mighty Max M.M., but it was also, uh, you know, his nicknames for people distill the essence of their sort of performance ethos. So you have the big man, Clarence Clemens. He's the biggest man you've ever seen. Uh, you know, uh, Miami Steve, because he hated cold weather. So Mighty, the way I played the drums was, you know, sort of take no prisoners. And someone once described my drumming style, particularly when I was younger, as I played the drums as if they owed me money. And uh, <laughs> I kind of like that. Uh, there's a parallel, of course, Alan, we've talked about this uh, while watching a Blackhawks game. Uh, there's a parallel between rock drumming playing sports, certainly playing hockey. Um, uh, as you know, uh, my son is an extremely uh, talented, successful drummer for the band Slipknot. And yep. he developed his discipline, uh, his flexibility, and his drive from playing many, many years of hockey. We can get into that, of course, but, you know, that's what the drummer in a band is. You're, he was a goalie, my son. And he actually, he still is. We'll talk about that. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you, uh, as a drummer, you're a lot like the goalie. You've heard the expression, when the team wins, it's the team win. If the team loses, it's the goalie's fault. Well, that's like, <laughs> that's like being a drummer in a rock band. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a position that I've embraced for now, uh, oh, 60-something years. And I like that uh, being the last uh, line of defense in the music. So in 2009, on the Working on a Dream tour, you had a conflict uh, between your uh, duties with Conan 
and uh, what was always known as the Bruce Springsteen exception to all of your contracts. And uh, I remember vividly being at the United Center. And after about half the show, you were off the stage and your son, Jay, went on stage behind the drums, Mm. starts playing a song and you came out onto the, the floor and you're standing with the fans, maybe 15, 20 rows back, standing there with your arms folded, watching Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band with Jay Weinberg on drums. That's right. What was that like for you? Well, that has always been uh, an out-of-body experience, you know. Um, and even while being, nobody likes to be replaced. But when you're replaced by your son, <laughs> well, there's a double-edged sword element to that. And I was so happy for him uh, when he did that. He was, uh, that particular show, he was nine, uh, almost 19, not quite 19, he wow. started playing with Bruce when he was 18. And, um, you know, uh, you're, I'm just, uh, as they say, uh, in my household, I was cavelling. I was just uh, bursting with pride. He acquitted himself well. And I do attribute that uh, it, to some degree, a large degree, to the discipline uh, that he developed, you know, getting up on weekends, three o'clock in the morning to go play hockey. Uh, his sister, his older sister, Allie, same thing. They both played hockey on, uh, she played for her high school team. He played for club team and high school. So it's discipline. And, uh, I was just, I was thrilled for him because there's no better teacher about life in general than Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, it, it's, it was interesting how that came about because we did have a scheduling conflict, uh, with my uh, going to Los Angeles from New York to do the, Tonight Show, right. however brief that was, uh, we had a, a just because of the the sort of changeover, there was a, a a change in the schedule. So, and we were going on tour. It was uh, you know the working on a dream tour, and um, so I guess it was in December before we played the Super Bowl. Uh, uh, I was driving Jay back to college. It's one of my great memories. My phone and car rings. It's Bruce. And, you know, he goes, well, we're, you know, we're working on this thing. And, and you know, I've been try trying to figure it out. You've been trying to figure it out. And I thought, well, you know, he'd seen Jay, my son, play with a band that happened to be his son's, Evan, his son Evan's favorite band at the time. And it was in a, a you know, a, a beer and shot bar in New Jersey and Jay sat in with him and Bruce saw him that night and you know he saw how good he was and then that summer he the summer before that he he sat in on Born to Run at Giant Stadium which was you know I had tears streaming down my face because I didn't even know about it it was a surprise to me they cooked it up and he just killed it nailed it in any case he calls me on my uh, uh car when I'm driving him Jay back to college he's a college graduate of Stevens Tech in, in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, with honors. And uh, he'd say, well, I thought, you know, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about Jay taking over? And he wasn't asking me as, as sort of, you know, capital B, capital S, Bruce Springsteen. He was asking me as a father to father. And I said, well, I mean, I know what the job entails, 
And I know what his constant training, dropping down, everything else. And he, Jay and Allie, my, my, you know, we were a true hockey family. And we still are to some extent, but uh, when they were growing up. Uh, so I know he's got the discipline and the drive and the work ethic that you need uh, for sports that he can. He obviously has translated that to music. So, yeah, I think he can do it. So, you know, and as a matter of fact, he's sitting right next to me. He goes, let me talk to him. So I put him on the phone and I'm hearing from Jay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. And then he goes, he sort of exclaims loudly, expletive deleted. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine what he said. And I got off the phone. He hung up. <laughs> and I, I said, well, what did Bruce say? He goes, well, he said that. You know, Jay, you might have heard I have a band. And in the band, I've got the best drummer in rock. He's got a scheduling conflict. And he conflict. He gave me your number and said that uh, perhaps, you know, I should ask you if you'd be interested in joining the E Street Band. He really built it up. It was great. And that's when it was exploited, deleted. So, uh, you know, it was incredible. It existed for me on a lot of different levels. I had the terrific experience of watching a fantastic drummer play with the E Street Band. No one who's ever been in the E Street Band has seen, you know, uh, the E Street Band play, the, well, at least the lineup that I was in, you know, the, the, what they call the longtime E Street Band, me, Roy Bitton, Gary Talent, Steve Van Zandt. They've never seen the E Street Band. And I had the opportunity to go out and actually experience it. It was pretty damn good, I must say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were some songs that Jay, he killed on. Yeah. And Bruce would say, well, you know, Radio Nowhere, Jay kicked your ass on that one. <laughs> he owned that song. So, you know, as a dad, you want to hear that. What, what I've always noticed about you live in concert, and I've seen you guys... Uh, probably about 140 times. And it, you really see it in the just released 1979, the legendary uh, No Nuke shows, uh, the two shows in, at MSG, and, 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 which were incredible. I've just been watching them a lot the last uh, you know 10 days because it's, it's new and it's fresh. You never take your eyes off of Bruce. And what I noticed with Jay, is he had the same focus on Bruce, following him everywhere he goes, even if he goes behind the behind yeah, the drum set. You know, you're still watching him. It's it's incredible, and knowing that Jay was a goalie for so many years, that's very much like a goalie tracking the puck oh, yeah. and never taking your eyes off the puck. So when you talk about the training from hockey coming over into his drumming. That must have played some part of it. Well, that absolutely did, Alan. It's uh, uh, it's that laser focus. And when you can develop that, and you can develop it, and you can go there, the more you practice what people have called, and I embrace the idea of flow, where you're in a heightened state of awareness. And I've had athletes say to me, uh, uh, you know, Paul O'Neill, the great Yankees uh, pal, and he once said, you know, sometimes the baseball looks like a soccer ball and sometimes it looks like the period 
at the end of a sentence. <laughs> and <laughs> it's much better when it looks like a soccer ball. So, you know, time slows down. You're in the flow. Sports, particularly the way the Eastview Band plays, sports is an apt uh, analogy because it's very physical to do anything for four hours at peak intensity, um, particularly as you get older. You know, I'll be 71 uh, the next time we play. And, no, uh, uh, oh, I may have just made some news. But I will be 71 in 2022. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you got to take care of yourself. You recognize, and I've been hurt. I've had eight, uh, eight operations on my hands, two back operations. I had my shoulder rebuilt by the doctor who's the, uh, uh, the doctor for the U.S. Olympic swimming team. And I came to him in New York, Dr. Scott Rodeo, because he rebuilt uh, Eli Manning's shoulder two years before Eli won the first Super Bowl. Wow. I figured, you know, the same shoulder, right shoulder, and I had just shredded my shoulder. And, you, you know, fortunately, uh, uh, as you get older, you get wiser, you figure out how to play. But, yeah, you can't take your eyes off where the action is uh, happening. And in a lot of cases, and I, uh, people have asked me about this, but when Bruce finally gets down to a soaking wet T-shirt, <laughs> he telegraphs, I don't even know if he realizes he does this, but he's so muscular that there's a muscle uh, just under his trapezius that when he's about to do something, now I don't know what it may be, but it's something that I will need to hook up to. That muscle will, will tense up and I'll see it. I can see it through a wet t-shirt and uh, it'll just give me an edge for a slight second. And it's like a bit of a tell. And there's certain things, you know, because that's, well, you know, whether it was me or anybody else, that's the job. And it's like the goalie job. Uh, yep. It's, it's you know, it's the catcher's job. It's the center's job. You know, those positions have no margin for error. And, you know, uh, when, when the play on a hockey on the ice is at the other end, it, you may, it may look like the goalie doesn't have anything to do, but he's he is acutely aware of where the action is and what what might happen. And that's what it's like on stage for me anyway, with the E Street Band, um, because I have to uh, uh, watch Bruce. Actually, there's a camera when uh, during our shows, there's one camera that is a feed to a little TV monitor that I have uh, mounted on my bass drum that no matter where he goes, that camera stays on him and gives me a feed. So very often in a stadium, he'll go out to the wings of the little side stages. Right. And there's a, there's a moment where he disappears from sight and I'll switch from real-time vision to the monitor. Or in the old days, I used to be, turn, I used to be able to comp almost completely turn around when he went behind me. But after two unsuccessful back operations from drumming, uh, I use the camera. <laughs> I, don't, I don't turn around and people, and he'll give me a cue and people will wonder, well, how the hell did I catch that cue? Because the one thing with Bruce on stage is you can be sure of one thing. You can never be sure of what he's going to do. And uh, it, it can, it, you know, it's, <laughs> uh, it, it's pretty amazing feeling. Uh, you're at that heightened state anyway. Right. But, you know, he'll throw something out. I mean, we usually play, 
during a typical show from 32 to 34 songs. And a good every night, a good 15 of those songs are not on the set list. As a matter of fact, Kevin Buell, his longtime uh, assistant uh, and guitar tech, um, he keeps all the set lists. They're, they're sort of Xerox, they're copied, and he keeps them all. And he has an original, and then he has what the show became in a book. And when you look at what the show became, it looks like uh, Chris Collinsworth with a telestrator. You've got arrows all over the place, right? And, uh, because, Bruce, there's so many audibles. We call them audibles. And if you're lucky, he'll tell you what song it is. So, <laughs> and, you know, very often, uh, you know, oh, I shouldn't say very often, but, it, you know, it'll happen where he'll get to counting one, two, three, four. And at three and a half, I don't know what song it is. Stuff has happened so quick. That's crazy. Well, I've heard college football players say that the, the 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 difference between college and pro is they could not believe how fast everything had, how much faster everything happens. That's what it's like uh, if uh, being on stage with Bruce and the E Street Band uh, changes, and and you have to really be engaged. The other thing is, you'd be amazed if you were dropped onto that stage. And I've actually had musicians, you know, well-known musicians say this to me. They couldn't believe how relaxed it is. It's, it's, it's sort of like the eye in the hurricane, the stage. Very, very relaxed. But frantic. And not, I shouldn't say frantic. Energized. And uh, that's a really good combination when you can get the kind of, you know, and you see it in pro sports all the time and college sports. When you're in that space where, you know, that perfect spiral, that impossible shot that somebody made, whether it was uh, some of the new guys or Crosby or Wayne Gretzky, uh, you know, Bruce is a guy we, we used to go. We used to go all over to follow the Devils and went up to Pittsburgh and Mario. Mario Lemieux had just come back. And one of the things that athletes like, you know, people have seen, and of course they have, you know, the Mario Lemieux, the, the Brady's, the uh, uh, Michael Jordan, they make everybody play better. And Bruce is like that. And uh, he ups, ups the game. And when I saw Mario Lemieux, and he was just back from his illness and uh, part owner of the team, and he played with the team. And we were up there, uh, you know, with the kids wearing their devil shirts, of course. <laughs> Wherever we went, they wore their devil shirts, whether it was Philly or Toronto. Philly can be dangerous wearing a devil's. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. They got, yeah. <laughs> they got abused. Well, Philly was interesting because first they'd see the devil shirts and fans would abuse them. And then they'd see me and wait a minute. <laughs> That's Mighty Max from the E Street Band. And Philly is one of our the biggest supporters we've ever had in, yeah. in music, you know. Uh, so they sort of then backed off. But um, yeah, I saw Mario Lemieux play and it looked like he was so good. It looked like the father playing, you know, pond hockey with a group of kids. That's how good he was at his age. And, you know, when he came out of the dressing room, he looked, we, we met him, and he, he, he looked like Elvis Presley at his prime. It was just incredible, you know? So hockey has been uh, something that our family, uh, through the years, really rallied 
uh, around. It was an activity that we did as a family. In fact, other than going to museums, it was the the activity we did, whether it was the club uh, um, with uh, my son Jay or high school uh, with uh, um, my daughter Allie, who was the only girl, young woman, I should say, uh, on the boys' varsity team. And wow. who to, to this day maintains the record of most penalty minutes in the history of her high school. <laughs> Amazing. Not, not only that, not only that, Max, but I saw her on stage play keyboards yeah. with the E Street Band. Yes, she uh, I was know, at that show. She's an incredible pianist and uh, uh, accordionist and a wonderful singer. Never wanted to do it professionally. She's a. Uh, producer and journalist for PBS NewsHour, and her specialty is really foreign affairs, uh, as is her husband, who uh, is a CNN uh, commentator, and Washington Post columnist, Josh Rogan. But she still plays in a woman's league, but she played, <laughs> Bruce saw, she was at a rehearsal when she was like 10, um, no, maybe 10 or 11 years old. And she was playing, you know, she took piano lessons, Bruce heard her playing. And then said, uh, well, you, you got to come up on stage with us sometime. And she did when she was almost 12 and played, uh, I think, Glory Days. But she's got pictures, you know, she and Bruce, she playing a, a accordion at Nat Stadium in Washington on American land. And they're both wearing these sailor hats, enlisted, you know, like enlisted sailor hats, you know, and uh, caps. And uh, it's a great picture. You know, I'm out of focus in the background. Right. And uh, so, yeah, both my kids have you know, played a lot of times with Bruce and the E Street Band and uh, uh, and, and his, you know, uh, we've had a variety of our children up on stage. It's fun. Yeah. Wow. You, you talked about uh, Bruce and uh, and being up on stage and uh, not knowing what song was coming next for for a good part of uh, since the band was reunited in ninety nine. Bruce would play the stump the band game where he would take signs out of the audience yeah. of, of requests. And, you know, he'd show them, he'd always turn around and show it to you. Uh, and then you guys would just go and play it. And lots of times there'd be a pause for a full minute or two while Bruce Nils and Steve are all trying to figure out what key to play in uh, the chord, uh, where the chord, you know, which chords to play. And you're all kind of on stage in front of, in an arena, 20,000 people in a stadium in front of 60, 70,000 people. And you're literally on the stage trying to figure out how to play the song. And it's almost like the fan is being given a window into what it must be like in the recording studio with all you guys together. That's exactly what it's like. And, you know, as I say, the relaxation aids and abets that moment. Usually I'm playing the drums and vamping. And Bruce has said many times that, you know, as long as I know the tune and we, we can get it started. Now, I don't have to learn chords. And that's a real advantage if you want to play it correctly. But the the also we and even my jukebox band, we've all come out of the New Jersey bar band world where you know you had to play six seven hours a night in the 60s and early 70s so you had to know a lot of songs either know them or know how to fake them and we are really good at that really good at fake and that's a big part of being a musician is faking it that's why they have these so-called fake books 
that just give you a melody line. And as long as you have the melody, in my case, if I have the rhythm or the beat, you know, and I've got this thing that if I hear a song once, I can remember it. I remember the drum part. I don't know what it is exactly. Uh, I'm sure it's tied in the memory, but um, it's the way my brain works. And uh, I hear a song once and I can play it. And um, uh, you know, rock song. And oh, the other thing is you've heard these songs, you know, millions of times on the radio. So it's in your soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said, as long as I know, I, you know, I know the beat and uh, uh, we'll get, we'll get through it. And it, it was, the, the jukebox thing is very similar because while we know all the songs that we pick from, uh, there's 300 of those songs uh, that the audience picks from. And we generally pay about 25 a night. Uh, if there's a song that somebody wants to hear and one or two guys know it, we'll give it a shot. You know, so it's a place where you can really be absolutely fearless. That's the stage, whether it's my little jukebox band or Bruce and the East Street band, you can be fearless. And as a matter of fact, being fearless is a sort of job requirement. And uh, uh, you know, it's a place that I'm completely comfortable being. And part of that is because, you know, when you make mistakes, you let them strike out, you let a goal in, you don't dwell on it. Right. You know, if you see a goalie, they take a hockey goalie, they take a sip of water. They have their routines. And I've known some great NHL hockey goalies and players, of course, um, everybody's got a little routine. So, you know, as a drummer, you make a mistake, you do it again, and it becomes part of the arrangement. So you learn how to cover your mistake. <laughs> drummers, are, drummers are kind of like carpenters molding. You know, when you build a house and you use molding, that's where you cover up your mistakes. And the drummer, his job is to smooth over the rough passion patches and make the transitions. Uh, and there's a lot of parallels to sports. You know, that's why a lot of musicians are sports fans, I think. And why a lot of athletes are, mus- are, are fans of bands. You know, look at Bill Walton, who's, you know, the, the greatest deadhead of them all. <laughs> and, you know, I don't, uh, uh, I don't think there's ever been a concert that Pat Riley could, Riley could get to and didn't go to. Right. And one of the greatest sights consistently is seeing Pat Riley out in the audience about five rows back, six foot, whatever, eight in front of, you know, Clarence's position. And it's still Clarence's position, you know, with this look of awe on his face. You know, I love that because, you know, uh, we go to sporting events and you see, uh, you know, it's a long season, whether whatever it is. And you got to be there every night. You know, and Bruce's ethos is that we may have been playing our 10,000th show, but it may be the first time you're seeing us. And you, because of your price of admission, deserve the best we can give that night. And that, that night is the only thing that matters. Yesterday doesn't matter. Tomorrow doesn't matter. Right here, right now. And, 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 and it's a really good message, I think. But that's also part of your ethos because I've seen your jukebox band play um, two or three times once here in California in San Juan Capistrano. Yeah. And you guys, I mean, you guys were on fire. How many songs, just to give everybody an idea of what's going on, you've got this giant screen 
scrolling rock and roll classics. How many are there? Several hundred. Yeah, it's about 300. And I I change it up every six months or so. We add some, take some out. And I also have a, a deep bench with my jukebox because, you know, the working musician has to do whatever job comes along, has to do a lot of jobs if you want to have a career at it. I have the incredible blessing and, and, and great fortune to, you know, to be a member of the E Street Band for almost 50 years. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when, when, when I'm doing my own thing, uh, people have to work. So I have subs, you know, I have, to, uh, you know, some guys sit down, I got another guy to come in. So, you know, uh, the way I run my career is, and the older you get, I think you lose a lot of your expectations and I don't have a crew. I go, I set up the drums. There are different drum set every night. I tune the drums. I work with the lighting guy. If there is one, if there isn't one, I say, you turn the lights on at the end of the night, you turn the lights off. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's not about all that. It's about getting people up out of their seats, particularly pre COVID. Now I encourage them to just move left to right vigorously while they're sitting down. Uh, but you know, my job is to get them up and dancing and move them physically. And there's no such thing as a bad audience. It's your job as a performer to do whatever you can do to get that audience involved and engaged in what it is you're doing. You're doing the show. And I've learned, I learned that from Bruce that, you know, you may be dead tired. You may have ridden the bus all night long, whatever it is. The only thing that matters is showtime, whether it's sports, you know, athletics, music, anytime where basically your ass is on the line, everything else has got to fade away. And when you apply that to being in a band making music, whether it's a backup band, a a democracy in a band like, you know, the Beatles uh, or U2, or as Bruce says, a benevolent dictatorship, as the street <laughs> band is. Uh, when you're all pushing in the same direction, it's a marvelous thing that uh, is fueled by that intensity and that energy. And I, and I, I think that's why people want to hear us play, because it, it's not just a show, it's our lives up there. And it's real, it's very real. And, um, you know, we take that idea that... Uh, you know, we want to give you every night more than your money's worth. And, and, and these are sort of mottos that Bruce has always thrown out through the years that you come to our show, you know, 30 songs are going to equal a bigger experience than just 30 individual songs. You, your life should be transformed in, way, in some way. We blow into your town. We, you know, blow the roof off the place. And then we're gone. And for us, it's transformative. And we hope for the audience, it's transformative. And, you know, there's, there are very few bands, not very many that have stayed together as long as we have with largely the same personnel and been able to dig down and be creative and be uh, performers uh, and, you know, uh, and still dig down into the material. Uh, this Letter to You film and album that came out a couple of years ago, that was a very good um, uh, example of, of that. 
As a matter of fact, you guys were in the studio for four days. Yeah. Did 16 songs. I think 13 or 14 were released. And it was, you know, five, six hours, just all business. And that's the way we like it. All business. You know, I mean, there's frivolity at the end and there may be a shot or two of tequila uh, in a very controlled way, Uh, you know, but as I said, you can't have any expectations. You got to stay real loose. In fact, there's this, there's a there's a moment in that where we had kind of talked down what we were going to do. As you can see, there wasn't a lot of rehearsal. He comes out, he plays the song on his acoustic, and here's the riff like "Born to Run." That's the riff. Songs are built around riffs. They're sort of our plays, and uh, you build off of that. You know, um, you know when you're in the huddle with uh, uh, a, a quarterback and he's looking at his wrist. And, you know, it's this shorthand, you know, I've often marveled at how everybody in a split second can get what play it is, mm-hmm. you know, 98% of the time, right? right. And the other 2%, you have to adjust. And so we're recording, tape is running, and in the middle of the song, Bruce just changes the arrangement as we're recording. Wow. And I'm only about three feet away from him, so I, I'm very much hooked up, you know, and and that's the way it's got to be. You know, you're if you don't get the drums, you got to get the drums if you're recording live, particularly, you know, that's the foundation. And it's whether it's me or anybody else got to get the drum part right. So and then you can, you know, we did everything live. There were I don't think there were hardly any overdubs on that letter to you, maybe a vocal line here or two here or there, you know. And you uh, didn't play live since uh, the Born in the USA re- sessions, the 83, 82, 83, 84. Well, you played live. In the the rhythm, the, well, as a band, yeah, as a full band. We hadn't done that since the original two weeks of recording in 1982. Although we did do a, uh, we did two songs in Los Angeles on, I forget which tour it was, um, Kingdom of Days and A Year of My... Uh, Special day, is it? Or you're my, there were two songs we did. We just went into the studio. Lucky day. Yeah. You're my lucky day. And, um, and the whole band was in there uh, recording simultaneously. And we did one recording session in Australia uh, with not only the whole band, the whole tour. Really? <laughs> that was a, where we had the 21 piece band, all the singers and everything. We were all in the studio and we cut two tracks, but the East street band, the last time we'd all been in the studio, was the first and second week of April 1982. Although when we made all the records we did, like The Rising, Magic, Working on a Dream, the sort of Brendan O'Brien produced records, it was the live rhythm section, me, Roy, and Gary, and Bruce. And then, uh, you know, Steve, Nils, Patty came in, uh, uh, Danny, uh, thankfully, was able to come in on uh, Magic and, uh, you know, put his magic on that. Clarence, of course. Uh, and, and overdubbing. So the rhythm section, you know, I've done recording sessions with Bruce at his house, which is just me and him. It's just you know, acoustic guitar and drums and, you know, finish it later. Uh, get an idea, call me up and say, hey, come on. You know, I'm always happy to be enlisted to play on his uh, solo stuff. I mean, it's really all solo stuff, but extra E Street band. Right. Right. I, I know a lot of people don't know this, but you actually play drums on uh, some of the most impactful songs on Bad Out of Hell with Meatloaf I back did. in the day. 
Uh, yeah. Paradise on the dash in the dashboard light is yours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth and bad out of hell. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. Man. Right. Can you tell us anything about those sessions? Yeah, I played those three songs and then my good friend Todd Rundgren fired me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Todd is a good friend. And, and it was just very deservedly inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Incredible, incredible musician, producer, songwriter, singer. One of my favorite all-time songs with the jukebox plays is by the Naz, which was his original band in Philadelphia, uh, Open My Eyes. Incredible song. Right. But in any case, uh, he, he wanted to go in a different direction and use his band, uh, which he did, uh, on two, two out of three ain't bad and, and one or two other songs. But yeah, I, uh, uh, I played on a, you know uh, some of those uh, some big records. I actually am on the uh, drums on the, at the number one and two singles on the Billboard charts when the charts really mattered back in the 80s. Um, with Bonnie Tyler, Total, Total Eclipse of the Heart, yeah. <laughs> Air no Supply, kidding. Making Love Out of Nothing at All. And yeah. they were number one and two at the same time. I also have the distinction of playing drums on the only unsuccessful Barbra Streisand single. It's <laughs> 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 some sort of dubious distinction, but you take the good with the bad. And hey, listen, it was just... Uh, uh, it, it was uh, she overdubbed to the to the to the rhythm track, uh, but it was still a thrill for me to uh, appear on a a Barbara Streisand song, which was written by the late Jim Steinman, who wrote all the meatloaf and uh, his own material. You know, incredible, incredible uh, artist Songwriter. he was. Uh, but yeah, the, the you, you know the the meatloaf record really took on a life of its own. I think it's the largest selling uh, rock album in history. Yeah, either, has, either that or Born in the USA. Born yeah, in the USA might have nudged it out. I'm not sure. I think it did, but but uh, Battle to Hell is is sitting right now at around, I believe, 57 million units sold worldwide, and Born in the USA is is eclipsed 60 million. Well, you know, listen, if it keeps going, those records are going to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> Max, I think you're onto something. <laughs> yes, yes. Stick to it, man. Stick to it. <laughs> that's actual sales, which that's not downloads. That's that's not streaming. That's actual hard sales right. of product. And right. uh, we actually still sell a lot of vinyl, which is kind of nice, you know, because, uh, you know, if you if you if you get into vinyl and. Young people love vinyl. My son's been listening to vinyl his entire life, you know, and listens to it on a hi-fi, mm -hmm. like a piece of furniture. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I've been very blessed to be a part of, uh, you know, some records that, that really had legs and that, that moved a lot of people. And uh, it never, ever gets old. It's, you know, uh, even, you know, I hear, I hear something I did on the radio. It's a thrill. You know, I, I can remember when Born to Run came out, we were playing in Santa Barbara and it was out and we hadn't heard it on the radio. And our, we had like our road manager had a station wagon and the knock on my door and it was Bruce and he wanted to go get something to eat in the hotel we were staying in. It was right on the beach. And so we're driving to Denny's or someplace to get something to eat. It was about two in the morning. Had the radio on and Jungle Land comes on the radio. 
FM radio, right? And he pulled over the side of the road and was sitting there in the darkness, listening to that for the first time. It was the first time I heard it. I think it was the first time he heard it on the, ra- on the radio. And my memory is that that scene is right out of a Bruce Springsteen song, you know, <laughs> kicking the radio up loud and the lights are off and you're just, you know, uh, those uh, uh, sounds coming out magical, just coming over the radio. The first time you hear yourself on the radio. I made a record in 1969 that I actually did hear on AM radio. Uh, one song, one time. And I, you know, they told me when it was going to play. And, uh, you know, it was a major hit in my town. <laughs> uh, didn't go very much further than that. Uh, wow. Well, wow. I... I had seen, sorry, Adam, I had seen Max, you talking uh, very uh, eloquently about some of your heroes when you were, um, you know, motivated you to play drums and the guys that uh, you revered. Uh, people like uh, DJ Fontana, the, who played uh, for, for Elvis Presley and Ed Shaughnessy with uh, Doc Severinsen's band on, on Tonight Show. And, and of course, the great Buddy Rich. And, and I think it's very similar to to athletes, you know, hockey players who grew up worshiping the players that they were seeing play in the NHL as they were playing the game nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. And 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 now they they're there and and they periodically take a deep breath and think of the times that maybe their dad brought them to a game and they're watching some of the legends who are now long retired. Uh, but very well remembered and and respected, and you know you carry on that tradition from the the greats from the very beginning of of music, popular music, rock and roll, uh, jazz, um, uh, blues, and and take all of that and and bring that out to your your almost fifty years in the E Street Band. It's really quite remarkable. Well, if you're honest with yourself and you've been fortunate enough to have any kind of longevity, you realize that uh, throughout your life, particularly when, you know, as Abraham Lincoln said, the artillery is getting louder. uh, You recognize you stood and you're standing on the shoulders of giants. And I can talk all day about the people who have inspired me in music and drumming and architecture in very many fields uh, who uh, broke through and were masters of what they did and they worked at it. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about athletes and my parents, both my parents were phenomenal athletes. Uh, my mother taught later on in life, taught gym for 46 years. But when she was young, she was, you, you name it, she, she was a great athlete. My father, 19, must have been 26 or 7 was uh, it went to Central High School, famous high school in Philadelphia. A lot of athletes came out of there. And he was the uh, all-state pitcher that season. He played baseball, football at the University of Pennsylvania. He was a guard. He swam. He played tennis. And he was a fanatic baseball fan. And uh, it had the depression not happened, he might have thought about and he was good enough to be, a, a, you know, to get into the big leagues. And he never lost his love for baseball. He was born in, ni- in 1909. And I once asked him when I was a teenager, you know, did he ever see 
they got to do a, a book report on Lou Gehrig. <laughs> I said, did you ever see, you know, Lou Gehrig or Babe Ruth play? He goes, Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth, of course, I saw them play all the time. He goes, Max, I saw Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner play. <laughs> when he wow. was like, you know, a little boy, his father took him, you know, he was Philly, Philly all the way. Uh, and um, so, you know, they grew up in an era where the sports were the beginning. You know, I mean, my father would talk about Red Grange and the, you know, the the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the, the things that interest him in athletes and athletics as a child and as a young, you know, teen who was very focused on sports and a very good athlete, knew a lot of professional athletes uh, when I was growing up. And his business was a summer camp in the Pocono Mountains. And uh, he knew all the Philadelphia teams. So we had all the pros in the 40s, 50s, and 60s come up for a weekend in the country to do clinics. So we had uh, Will Chamberlain, Guy Rogers, who was, you know, one of the great playmakers for the Philadelphia team, for, you know, Philadelphia Warriors. Uh, I mean, you know, I met Will Chamberlain when I was 10 years old and it wow. was, you know, incredible. Um, I remember, I remember waking up one Saturday morning and my father was doing a business deal. And in my living room was um, Elston Howard from the Yankees. And uh, I couldn't believe it. You know, he got me YA Tittle's autograph. Wow. So, you know, sports and I wanted, I was, a fanatic football fan when I was a kid while I was taking drum lessons. And I was a huge fan of, I taught myself how uh, my father bought me a book on place kicking. <laughs> and it was by Lou Groza, Lou Groza, who was Lou Broza, who was no Groza, who was the place kicker on the Cleveland Browns. And he wrote a book on place kicking. That's when they used to have the square toe with, it was metal. Right. And I told myself how to place kick because my parents would never let me play contact sports because they didn't. I was playing drums. They didn't want me to get hurt. And I was actually very upset at the time. But now, as I approach my 71st birthday, boy, am I glad they didn't let me. Play contact sports. <laughs> you know, uh, drumming with Bruce Springsteen is contact sport enough for me. But I told myself how to place kick, you know, and I was a, I, I won the kicking part of the punt, pass, and kick competition, which was a nationwide competition in 1961. I could kick, you know, at the time I could kick 45 yards, 50 yards, you know, not on a tee. And I still have my football and tee. So there's hope for me yet. <laughs> uh, you know, in my house, Sundays are devoted to watching as much football uh, as possible. And uh, as Mark Stein who's my dear friend and manager who you guys know uh, says, well, you love football, but really you love quarterbacks. Hmm. And I do. I, I love quarterbacks. You know, I just think it's, um, I mean, I love every position. And my father, as I said, was a guard and he had the broken nose to show it. And he played football when helmets were optional. Right. Right. And, and just the bar, just the one just bar. No bar. It was just no bar. Leather. It was oh, like the old leather, you know, oh, wow. aviator hat. <laughs> and he said, he, no, very few. Like, if you wore a helmet, <clears throat> he played high school football, no helmet. We went to University of Pennsylvania and made the varsity team as a guard. He was big. 
you know, he was six in those days, he was six, two, two thirty, and strong, you know, uh, you know, his nose was mashed to the left. It was mashed to the <laughs> right. And, you know, uh, so sports and music were the big things in my family. And there's so many parallels as we've discussed on this uh, show of yours uh, that I think it, in my own life, it translated because, you know, when you get to know athletes and when you watch enough sports, uh, you uh, the game opens up to you. But that's what it was with hockey. You know, people somehow don't, and people who are not familiar with hockey don't know how to watch hockey. But once you watch enough games, and I've seen hundreds, hundreds of games, everything slows down and you see the strategy and it's it's incredible experience. Hockey players are among both the nicest and strongest athletes out there. And, you know, uh, one of our great experiences, we played in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, when they were filming the movie, Paul Newman filming the movie Slapshot. Yep. And we were playing a concert there, right? On a day where they weren't filming. So we all got in the band, Hanson Brother shirts, hockey shirts, right? The Chiefs jerseys? Y- yes. And if you see the movie, the Hanson Brothers, so, you know, I don't particularly see it, but everybody in the old days used to say, you know, you kind of look like one of those guys with the black horn. <laughs> so I would wear this Hanson, you know, Chiefs shirt. And um, Jay, my son, when he was getting into hockey, he never went anywhere without his autograph Devils uh, jersey. And my daughter, too. They had autographs all over it. Um, he saw that and he goes, where did you get that? Because Slapshot was one of their favorite movies, right? Well, we happened to, you know, they all came down to the show and we got these, these, this was like 70, it was in the seventies. And, uh, uh, so little things like that, you know, my son, Jay still, he, he can't do it when he's on tour, but he organized a men's team in East Nashville called the East side hellhounds. <laughs> he got, uh, endorsement deals with, the uh, the major equipment suppliers and, you know, uh, in his day, huh, goalie pads were a lot different than they are now. They covered a lot less, a lot less territory. And he still has uh, right on his chest right here, puck marks where it got past wow. the, wow. the you know, puck. Um, but we were very lucky to, uh, to follow, uh, you know, New Jersey Devils hockey and, uh, and get to know the guys during, uh, you know, we, we were, you know, went to every game for about six years until my kids graduated high school and, and went off on their own and, uh, you know, season tickets. And it was just an incredible experience. I remember you were very close with Bobby Holik. You were very yes. close with him. Yeah, very close with Bobby and, uh, and Renee Holik. And Bobby is uh, one of the most incredibly uh, talented and intelligent people I've ever met. Uh, it could have been a rocket scientist if he wasn't such a bruiser on the uh, hockey, you know, on the ho- on the ice. And uh, someone from Detroit once said to me, one of the most frightening sights you can see on the ice is Bobby Polik bearing down on you. <laughs> Almost 6'5", 245 pounds of nothing but muscle and nothing phased him. You, you know, you could hit him in the face. He wouldn't flinch. And I learned a lot from Bobby Holik, and uh, uh, you know it was wonderful. I did an event for the Devils um, on their 20th anniversary 
of the uh, 20, uh, the, uh, 20 years ago when they won the Stanley Cup in 2000. And uh, they had all the players come back 20 years later. And here I am, you know, with Marty Brodeur and, uh, you know, all the guys who played on that team, Scott, Scott Gomez and uh, Ken Danico and uh, Scott Stevens. And, you know, it was great because we, you know, we were very fortunate. Uh, I had relationships uh, with the, uh, with the team and, uh, you know, uh, you know, when you go into an arena in New Jersey and your picture's on the wall, you can pretty much walk wherever you want, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and the old Continental Airlines Arena, yeah. Brendan Byrne. Yeah. Yeah, the old Brendan Byrne, which was yeah. a great venue for hockey, no obstructions. And it was all it was all seats. It was not luxury boxes. It was all seats. And it was a great place to play. We we love playing those old places, Sports Arena in LA and yeah. uh, you know, the Forum. Uh, uh, so in, in LA, uh, the Spectrum. You, oh God, yes. Yeah. Of course, Cobo Hall. All the old classic, you know, McNichols Arena, Denver, uh, you know, Riverfront Stadium. I don't I think a lot of them aren't there anymore. But, uh, you know, so we, we managed to, uh, to to play a lot of the old barns, as they call them. You know, they were drafty, but they had a vibe. And, uh, uh, you know, it uh, it's still just a, an incredible peak experience for me to A, play and a peak, peak experience to play with Bruce and the E Street Band. No kidding. When they, when they set you up in those old barns, you know, backstage, you know, we've got this vision of what it's like to be a rock star backstage. Are you guys sitting in the old dressing rooms? Is it cold drafty cement block or did they dress it up a little? No, 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 it's like a dirty, smelly, you know, I mean, they'll they'll, they'll, uh, put some curtains up. Oh, that's nice. Black black sort of curtains and curtain things off. But um, yeah, it's the locker rooms of the, of the arenas. It's not usually the, it's, it's always the visiting team. Mm. You know, it's never, it's never the home team. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll set up there. And, you know, we're not really in there very long. Uh, but Pete Townsend of The Who once said, he came on tour with us for three weeks uh, one summer. And he said in an interview that, you know, backstage at a Bruce Springsteen show, it's, it's like being at a hospital. <laughs> it's so <laughs> anti-rock and roll and it is it's quiet it's clean it's orderly it's there's no drama there's no people you know uh and it's true it's just all business all business we come in sometimes you know most of the time we do a little sound check just which i think is mainly to make sure everybody shows up <laughs> and, you know, we'll screw around we'll play some old songs some old rock and roll or whatever and I had a funny experience at Giant Stadium, the old Giant Stadium. I got there early and I was messing about on the drums and Gary was there and Steve was there. And uh, we started playing a whole lot of love, the Led Zeppelin song, just to you know, jam around on it. And suddenly the rumor started in the parking lot that Jimmy Page was playing with the, you know, was going to play with Bruce and the E Street Band that night. <laughs> so we were just messing around on a whole lot of love. And uh, uh, that was kind of funny, but uh, there's a million stories and eventually they'll all be told. And, and we keep telling them to each other in the band. So (laughs) through my good friend, Mark Stein, I've had the great fortune to be uh, at his uh, uh, Joe DiMaggio uh, uh, fundraising baseball games. Right. Which where, you know, there brings out all the old veterans and old, 
you know, you know, who still was wonderful being in the locker room. I mean, there's pictures of me wearing the, the uniform and I'm in the locker room with Brooks Robinson and uh, some of the really famous baseball players that I grew up with who, you know, what was, uh, I'll tell you one thing, uh, Minnie Minosa could not run. But Mick, I stood behind him, the batting cage, when he was hitting, he was still a power hitter. It was very impressive. Wow. And he couldn't run, you know. He, mm. Earl Weaver threw out, threw out the first pitch. He was like 94 years old. <laughs> he kind of dribbled halfway to the, uh, uh, to the mound, you know. But uh, a lot of parallels between sports and, and, and rock and roll and the muscularity of it. Uh, uh, and I'll tell you one thing, uh, Bernie Williams, if he hadn't been a phenomenal baseball player, absolutely could have made it as a professional musician. He sat in several times with my TV band and he was more on top of it than most professional musicians who ever sat in with us. And whatever we threw at him, he caught. Very impressed with his musical ability. And, uh, uh, and uh, Paul O'Neill uh, was, uh, and I'm sure still is, is an avid uh, drummer. You know, he's got a drum set. We went to an old, uh, uh, I guess they call them the old timers games. And we went and I took my son, it was family day and took Jay and he was a little boy. And um, I didn't know it, but they had a music practice room under the bleachers at Yankee Stadium. And this is the old Yankee Stadium. And uh, so I go in there and I'm jamming with, you know, I forget it was playing bass, but Paul was playing drums. Bernie Williams was playing guitar. And... Uh, and it was a thrill for me. I mean, these guys, major leaguers. And I don't, you know, if you're if you're an, a, a, an American male who's my age, to be around major leaguers still it was a big thrill. You know, seeing Michael Jordan play was transcendent for me. Yep. You know, uh, seeing that level of of commitment and expertise. You know, we're just talking about pure physical prowess and understanding the game. And you know. The seeing Scott Niedermeyer get to top speed in a step and a half and just he was the best skater on the Devils. Um, we had a great experience. Uh, we went to an all-star game in Denver, the whole family, and we met Gordie Howe. And uh, so I'm sitting, we're having dinner in the hotel uh, and a young guy comes up to me and he's a, this was back in the, must've been either the late nineties or early two thousands, big fan of the Conan O'Brien show. And uh, uh, he's talking, you know, he asked my autograph, he's talking to me and, you know, he's reciting bits I've done, comedy bits. And he asked me to do my deadpan stare and <laughs> did that for him. He goes, you know, I'm here with my family and you know, my grandfather. And you know, would you come over and say hello? Would you mind? He goes, I, I said, sure. You know, so I, as soon as we're done, we'll, I'll come over and say hello. So we go over and I notice his grandfather's wearing this green jacket. And I have no idea who he is. And uh, he introduces me to his parents, his sister, I guess it was. And this is my grandfather, Ted Lindsay. Wow. And cool. Yeah. So my son, uh, whoa, Ted Lindsay, right? <laughs> so uh, and just he had to be in his 80s and he was fit as a fiddle. Yep. And I actually, I'm sorry to say, I was, I was impressed. Of course, he's in the Hall of Fame. I was impressed. That was the jacket. So I didn't quite know. I called Mark Stein. I said, gee, I met Ted Lindsay tonight. 
He's going, you met Ted Lindsay? <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, the, the production line, right? And yep. uh, he was giving Jay and Allie, my kids, tips. And he told both of them, and he asked them the positions, but he told Allie, uh, who was played def- defense, you need to be within two strides. You need to be at your top speed. That should be your goal. And that was like words of wisdom. So, you know, we've had some great experiences as a family in sports. Oh man, that's incredible. Incredible. Wow. Wow. Well, Max, you've been so generous with your time. I could talk with you all night, but I know you probably have uh, other things to do. Uh, before uh, letting you go, I just want to mention that on December the 11th, you and your jukebox band will be playing at the Mayo Performing Arts Center in Morristown, New Jersey, and December 17 and 18 at the Count Basie Center for the Arts in lovely Red Bank, New Jersey. Red Bank, New Jersey, was sort of my hometown. And, uh, you know, that should be great. It's always great to play there. You never know exactly what's going to happen or who might show up. And uh, we always have some people sitting in and uh, uh, that uh, that should be a lot of fun. And I'm you know, going to be playing, you know, in your town somewhere. I, I do about five or six shows a month and it keeps me sharp. And as I said, uh, it keeps me closely aligned with Tom Brady's motto of, if you stay prepared, you'll be prepared. If you stay ready, you'll be ready. So I'm ready for anything that comes my way. So are we. <laughs> so are we. Pleasure talking to you guys tonight. Yeah. Thank you so much, Max. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the incredible stories. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing you uh, further on up the road. Well, as the man says, you will see me further on up the road. Take care and thank you. <laughs> you got it. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Max.